This show is for entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Canigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out more about the OPEX Society and what we can achieve together in your organization, or just visit opexsociety.org. Thanks for joining us for today's show. Today's guest is Marty Waldman. Marty has been in the space industry a very long time. His space career, starting in missile defense, uh, and going through the space shuttle and getting into now uh, power generation in space is very exciting. There's a lot to learn from Marty. And uh, if you're a student just entering your career in space, tune in because uh, he's got a lot of great advice. I actually dig in and ask him a couple of questions that weren't on the list that elicit some really cool answers that I appreciate a lot. We're also going to talk about, uh, as I said, this idea of power generation in space, and that's near and dear to my heart because I started out in the power industry uh, more than 20 years ago when I had hair. I had hair. Very exciting (laughs) at the time, but uh, wonderful to come back to that topic. Marty is the Principal Associate at Space Information Labs, uh, also with Edmund Burke, a great company. Look forward to hearing more from them. They actually manufacture products. He's president of United Horizons. And uh, like I said, his space career has been 44 plus years uh, with the U.S. Navy and the Air Force and uh, beyond as a civilian. And that's almost as long as I have been alive. Think about that. So tremendous knowledge to, to learn from here. We're also going to look at a couple of industry associations, which is valuable for new folks to the industry, including me. I I have a lot to learn, and I want to finish up, I guess, this section by saying that Marty's also the the founder and chapter president of the Southern Nevada chapter of the National Defense Industrial Association. So, Marty, welcome. One of the reasons why I was excited to to have you on was that you have had a space and missile defense career that has been as long as, uh, well, almost as long as I've been alive. (laughs) You have a ton of experience uh, with the the Navy, the Air Force, um, and, you know, missile defense, space shuttle, telemetry, you name it. Um, We're going to talk about a specific topic today, though, um, that you've brought up, which is nuclear power in the space industry. And there's a presentation that we're going to refer to that I'll let you explain. It's linked to in the description below, folks, so you can go and click on that link. I've got it up in the cloud and, and follow along or look at it later. Uh, however you want. But I really appreciate you being here. Let's start with this, Marty. With this super long career, like 44 years (laughs) and counting, right? What are two projects, at least that you're allowed to talk about anyway, that you're you're most proud of in your career and why? Um, Two projects. Well, the the big immediate one that comes to mind is... um, the space shuttle program and got to work uh, very much on the inside with that. Um, I, like many of your audience, had always been very interested in space, but uh, never really knew how I would get there, so to speak, not into space, but working with a space program and what's going to be coming. What I saw was going to be coming in, in the years ahead. And uh, after my initial my career began in Washington D.C. with uh, cruise missile the cruise missile program, and um, it was a terrific situation. 
Uh, but after about five years, I left that uh, in 1982 to uh, join up with the space program. Um, the cruise missile program uh, basically introduced me to uh, the same companies that were uh, integral with the space program, space shuttle in particular. Um, so it was really just a matter of uh, changing agencies. I was with the Navy uh, civilian to start out with and then uh, went out to Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, Central Coast, about 150 miles north of Los Angeles and um, worked because we were going to launch the space shuttle from the West Coast. Uh, to that point, uh, it launched from uh, Florida. Um, I forget how many missions at the time, probably, um, probably maybe around 10. And uh, Vandenberg is ramping up to launch into polar orbit, uh, opposed to equatorial orbit from Florida. And this was like my entry point. This was a fantastic opportunity that worked out, as was really all the positions I had between uh, Navy and Air Force in my career. But the highlight was actually being hired into the shuttle program. Um, there were only three civilian positions available. Uh, it, was, it was all military, um, probably 150 military, three civilian positions. And um, I was not hired for the first or second one. So you can imagine um, how I was, uh, what state I was in as that third uh, position I interviewed for it. And uh, had I not got it, my whole move, uh, leaving the great job in Washington, D.C., all this stuff uh, would have all been for nothing. So I was um, incredibly happy, to put it mildly, to be hired into um, spatial program. I was in the engineering section, and basically we supported all the activities on the pad. And uh, then when the hardware would start arriving, like the uh, orbiter, external tank, solid rocket boosters, all the, the components, uh, we we're also involved with the uh, interface engineering for that. So I got connected on every level. We got to spend uh, months, many months at Kennedy Space Center training. Uh, we were going to launch the orbiter Discovery. And uh, so I was there in Florida along with it because that, that was going to be, quote, owned by the Air Force because there were adaptations they needed to make to it for all the military missions. So instead of like adapting the other three as required, it was much uh, more efficient to configure one for us to basically be the launch site for. And that was the discovery. Um, so yeah, so I'm getting kind of deep in it. Did you want to ask more questions? Or yeah, sure. I mean, that, 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 super I exciting. Now I can go on and on with this stuff. But <laughs> I, yeah, I mean. well, let's let's jump to the point of view of say uh, a young person who is watching this or listening to this, and they are coming to the end of their school career, maybe um, they're getting a master's degree or a PhD or something and ready to go out into the workforce. Do you, looking back, have uh, any idea why you were hired for that third position as opposed to not hired? Is there any takeaway that that young person might be able to apply? Yeah, uh, just one word, persistence. Yeah. Okay. 
um, it was a focal point of uh, my career. And um, I just knew it, ha it had to happen. Hmm. And um, my interests ran so deep in it. Um, I wasn't the best student either. And um, had I maybe been a lot better student, maybe at some point I would have applied to be an astronaut. Hmm. Um, I never did that. Well, actually, I think uh, it's a long story. Uh, after all the stuff, after I've been in the program for a while, knew a number of the people, I was actually considering applying to be uh, an astronaut for um, later and post space shuttle uh, work. And then I, I realized the commitment to that would be way too much. Uh, at the time, I was maybe um, in my 40s. And it's like, at that point, do I, do I really want to uh, mm -hmm. have to put in all the time that that would require? And at that point, I realized that quality of life and being uh, just kind of um, being happy and working with something was more important than you know, maybe doing that. Uh, but early on, had I been a good student, maybe I probably would have done that because I would have uh, sacrificed other quality of life uh, in order to achieve that. Hmm. But um, the intense interest in the space program and knowing how I'd be involved, how I wanted to be involved in it, were the overriding forces um, which I think brought that to me, that opportunity. And uh, now it's, it's unbelievable. We just had the 35th anniversary of the Space Shuttle Challenger's uh, demise uh, on launch, January 28th, 1986. Um, and that totally changed my life, uh, obviously, because that, after that point, uh, they, they stopped uh, the effort to launch the Space Shuttle from Vandenberg Air Force Base. So, uh, so after about, uh, let's see, 86, 82, about three and a half, four years, I ended up not working on the space shuttle anyway because they took it away. Uh, however, uh, there was a bridge built for me to work with the shuttle's replacement, uh, which is the Titan IV. And I was a uh, system safety manager for all the ground systems with that. So immediately, as soon as I was out of the space shuttle, I was involved in another space program. Um, but it wasn't nearly, uh, it, it was very interesting. I got to travel a lot uh, to Denver. Uh, that opened up whole other worlds for me. Uh, what I learned, people I met. But uh, the, the, there is a certain aspect that uh, uh, with unmanned versus manned uh, spaceflight. So, um, but I, anyway, I appreciate that. Worked that program for about eight years um, until it became pretty operational. Didn't have the best um, mission success record, actually. They had a number of problems with the vehicle. I think they had like three or four failures in a row. Um, kind of bad. But um, anyway, my part was successful because mine was the pad interface and it definitely lifted off the launch pad and all, all those situations. So it was vehicle problems that, that uh, kind of dogged that program. But, uh, but that all evolved into another aspect of the launch vehicles came along and now today you see private enterprise involved in launching uh, their own vehicles.
So we have like probably about three major U.S. companies right now uh, doing that pretty well. So, um, but anyway, for that, for the student, whatever, I'd say, um, even if your grades aren't the best, if your interest is off the charts, um, so to speak, that's worth its weight in gold. Um, if I had been a great student and no interest in, in this stuff, I, I'm not sure what I would have done. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's a whole lot better to have a strong burning interest in something to make things happen in their life, whatever it is. And then the opportunities open up from that, including getting good enough grades in order to uh, achieve that. Because obviously I did need uh, an engineering degree, um, but by no means was I an A student, far from it. Um, I know a number of A students that have kind of floundered in their career because they never had any interest in any particular aspects of, of uh, space or aeronautics. I'm referring to air, you know, aeronautical or aerospace kind of careers. So uh, more focus and interest you can have, it's gonna uh, be a force multiplier for what you can achieve and okay. open up opportunities that you never would have thought existed. Right. Right. Well, Marty, would you classify yourself as more the the high level process idea guy or more the sort of the Shockley labs on the floor working with the gunk, trying to get the crystals to do their thing uh, kind of person? No, I'm more program manager. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, system architecture. So my uh, company um, is founded by Edmund Burke Space Information Laboratories. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my, basically all my energy and interest, um, uh, meeting Edmund was a very special thing back in around 1988. And that was a very special relationship, kind of like, uh, John Lennon, Paul McCartney kind of, uh, synergy. Uh, but again, I attribute that to my intense interest and his intense interest in, uh, things related to science and space. And, um, Many, too many, many, many things uh, evolved that got us to the point whereby the company was founded. And uh, today we are uh, producing hardware that goes and and space uh, missile programs. And um, even some on the space station. So even that's still that um human factor is, is present in my work also mm-hmm. so and uh things that we're working on many, many things which are totally interesting and captivating to me and especially uh if you have a shared this is another thing um try to think in terms of a team who you're going to meet mm-hmm. that's going to carry their side of the vision and dream that you can unite yours with um that's a force multiplier right there on top of the uh, energy from uh, being interested in enough in, in something to have that um, overcome other areas where maybe you weren't as great a student as other people. So uh, the concept of force multipliers here is very, very interesting. We hear that term asymmetric warfare these days with uh, you know bad people doing bad things, but pulling it off because it's easy for them to 
with a little bit of disruption, which causes a whole lot of disruption. I think the, the principle also works in the positive realm of creativity and working with people, um, whereby a little bit of creativity meeting a little bit of creativity in somebody else who's inspired like you is a force multiplier and brings about uh, incredible results that one wouldn't have got on their own. Uh, so I think that's a really important concept. Uh, there's those two things actually. First is what's your, what's your persistence and your burning interest? And then um, finding other people you can trust and work with. Um, uh, trust is so important. And um, finding those people who are that fortunate uh, to work with and build, build out uh, your dreams together with someone in a, uh, a company or service kind of uh, area. It's very important. Yeah, yeah, I think you lucked out with Edmund, Marty, because, uh, boy, it's hard to find a founder um, or co-founder. It's hard to find somebody who will be persistent, as, as you are and you brought up at the very beginning of this talk. Uh, lots of people will say they're interested and they're motivated and they want to do something, but to have them stick around. I mean, I, I've talked with many people uh, who I've thought about opening up a different kind of business with or or a niche or something like that and uh yeah it's some of them just folded <laughs> you know as soon as there was a bit of a barrier they're they're gone and uh, it's not even about money it's it's just some idea was in the way and they went well that's it we're sunk you know we can't proceed right and uh, so finding somebody who you can rely on who you can trust uh, is a real find um I just caution young people. It may not be as easy as you think to find that person. There's lots of people who will stick up their hand and say, yeah, I'd like to work together, but uh, having them stick around and, and do their thing uh, can be a little more challenging. So let's get to- I have, uh, yeah. Let me just add into mm -hmm. that. Um, I think there's a working ratio that's, mm -hmm. that we've found in our experience. Mm -hmm. Between 70 to 80% of who you meet that that sounds real genuine and you're really excited about, uh, there's going to be um, 20 to 30 percent that are going to flake on you or steal from you. So just keep that in mind um, until things have been really demonstrated um, that that you respect each other. Um, um, you only have the best intentions for the, the people you're working with. Uh, that really need that can only be shown over time. Uh, even major companies, I, I won't um, specify them here, but mm -hmm. large major companies you've heard of in the news, especially lately, um, very bad la uh, lack of ethics mm -hmm. and uh, treated us really bad, made us to believe that we were going to work with them. And then basically all they were doing was picking our brains and mm -hmm. stealing to do on their own. So um, very disappointing. But at the same time, the 70%, 70 to 80% that are, have good intentions and are honorable, uh, they'll pull you through that 20 to 30% that are going to try to hurt you. Not intentionally, they're just, um, they don't have it in them to be um, big enough in order to see the, uh, benefits of synergy they just yeah. want to do it all themselves i'm glad you brought that up marty because it 
folks need a reality check. <laughs> you know? uh, and you've got a ton of experience to share and I'm only too happy to learn uh, from it myself. So let's get to this presentation that you sent to me. Um, I'm, I'm going to link to it in the description. Like I said, folks can open it up right now and follow along if they want. Um, and, and it's about it's an argument for incorporating nuclear power into the space industry. And folks who have followed my show uh, will remember um, I had a self-taught um, nuclear propulsion, space propulsion historian on, um, who, and we had a whole episode about that. Uh, he runs a blog called beyondnerva.com and uh, lots of well-researched articles on there. Uh, but, but tell us about the organization, I guess. Let's begin with that, 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 uh, you put this or they put this together, you put this together with them um, and, and what their point of view is. Yeah, so kind of part of this whole equation that I mentioned, um, how do you find people to work with? Um, it's important to grow your network and what made a total difference in my life uh, was the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. AIAA, and uh, you can see their logo on um, on the first page of the presentation. There, this is our Las Vegas chapter here. Um, this is a, an organization of professionals in the aerospace industry, um, which provides you connection that you normally you would just have no access to. You wouldn't know where to look for these people. It brings these people full front and center to your world. The huge one that made a difference to me, and this is unbelievable. Um, I was in St. Louis on a um, uh, trip from when I was in DC, um, visiting at the time McDonnell Douglas. And uh, they're right at the airport there. Now it's Boeing. Uh, you see the name on the buildings there when you land at the airport. Um, I, I went there many times because this is where they produced the Harpoon cruise missile. And met many, many meetings, trips there. And um, I formed a friendship with a, a similar young engineer as myself. Um, we're talking probably about 1978, 79, 80. And um, he was just, uh, you know, kind of similarly inspired uh, person. Uh, working on the program like myself. And one evening he says, hey, your, your boss is gonna be speaking here um, at, at this event. I said, well, what is it? What's the event? And he says, ah, you know, he says, ah, just come along. So, so I went with him and that was my first uh, AIAA event I went to. Mm. And uh, the person speaking was the head of the cruise missile program, uh, Admiral Locke, L-O-C-K-E, who's my boss. In a sense, he wasn't my direct supervisor, but he was the boss of the program. I knew. And um, along with him, co-hosting that was the president of McDonnell Douglas, a large aerospace company. And um, I couldn't believe it. And this was the Keystone event which um, I signify as being my transfer from, uh, from my missile work to the space program because the president of McDonnell Douglas, his name is John Yardley. He was deep with the space program for years. He was an associate minister, administrator of NASA. 
I basically had access to him. This is this is huge. Okay, mm. so here I am, a little twenty-something-year-old engineer at the time, having access to the president of McDonnell Douglas. Unbelievable. And not only that, um, I I had uh, contacted him, and he invited me to come up to his office. And I met with him, and I met with him a number of times on a number of trips there. He became my mentor for transitioning into the space shuttle program. Uh, he was very involved with the shuttle program's development. I actually started back with the Mercury program, and Gemini was a big part of that. Apollo, huge part of it, um, and the space shuttle. Uh, because McDonald Douglas actually produced the orbital maneuvering system pods and other components that went on the orbiter. So um, he, he was hugely connected. I couldn't have asked for a, a better placed person to mentor me. And this is what these organizations such as this AIAA is all about is the mentoring and connections that you would just not receive otherwise. Huge. Um, nothing would have happened. Uh, I would have just been a, a someone somewhere um, with a career maybe uh, had I not been associated with this organization. Huge difference. And I'm still associated with it. And I'm actually the, the Las Vegas chapter president here. And um, so I highly encourage um, that if you're looking for a way to get connected into your industry, whatever it is, you might not even want to be in space, whatever industry it is, uh, like if you love whatever cars or and anything, whatever. <laughs> um, find the industry association that best represents what you're interested in and begin networking with those people. You'll be amazed what you find. Mm -hmm. Very key. Industry associations are key. Um, my association with the AAA led into, um, so I was at a conference in San Diego. And it was, it's called National Defense Industrial Association that um, uh, was running that. And I'd been to that conference before, but never really dawned on me what, uh, what they were about. And very simply, I went up to the leadership uh, there during the lunch break. I said, hey, is there one of these in Las Vegas? And they said, no. And um, I said, well, um, I'd be interested in working that if you guys are interested. They put me in touch with um, the headquarters in DC with it. And about six months later, I was fortunate to have founded the chapter here. And uh, it has grown uh, and we've had many programs. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give uh, Jason that link too, I'll give you that link. Um, we have been a great facilitator between what goes on at Nellis Air Force Base and Creech Air Force Base here. So this has brought me into connection on the whole military side of things, opposed to my pretty much civilian interests uh, with the shuttle and, and spaceflight. You know, there's a lot of military with that too. But this has put me directly uh, in contact with the uh, leadership of these two bases, which I never would have connected with everyone. So here again, so it's like two organizations now 
which have given me reach into areas that I've always loved, but never would have found a way to connect with. And now here I am kind of looking to do the same for other people um, with, with this guidance. Um, and these organizations are all around the US. So um, uh, I highly recommend you looking into them or whatever field it is that interests you, find out the leading trade organizations uh, that represent your interests. So, Fantastic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yeah, great stories, um, good leadership by yourself and, uh, and yeah, just lighting the way. Um, boy, yeah. I'm, like I'm just thinking things. back in my own career uh, how, how helpful these associations have been. Um, I, I worked in the power generation industry for a while and belonged to things in there. And yeah, you're going to get access and, and meet people on that. It's also the purpose for this show too, is, is I get access to folks who I, you know, otherwise probably would not, or would just bounce off the wall trying to get into, uh, because we can do an interview like this. Um, but yeah, very, very important. I'm going to check out <laughs> those organizations that you suggest, um, afterwards as well. So uh, I appreciate you pointing those out. So this, this document um, has been put together. Tell us about the big idea that you're promoting and how it applies to space. Okay, so the big idea kind of started with a small idea, with, with a very political idea. Mm. Um, just out there in your audience, whoever's watching, um, uh, if you've heard of the um, name Yucca Mountain, um, it, it, it likely has a negative connotation to it. It's been a uh, very uh, volatile political um, thing these past probably close to 40 years. Uh, I think it started in the 80s. Basically, um, nuclear um, generating plants, nuclear power plants, they have their nuclear fuel, but the fuel gets used. And then what do you do with the fuel, right? So how is it, you know, where is it kept? So Yucca Mountain is gonna be a storage a repository for the next million years or so or more uh, to put this spent nuclear fuel safely tucked away about a mile underground uh, in these tunnels and areas. And yeah, everything seemed like a big, uh, this is like the 70 to 80% rule I mentioned earlier. Um, it seemed like a very great idea. And technically at the time it was. Uh, and obviously uh, Nevada agreed to it at some level because they began construction. All the permits, everything happened, they began construction. So, and then all of a sudden, Nevada put the brakes on it and said, no, we're not doing this uh, for whatever reason. And then just all kind of uh, political stop signs came up and basically Yucca Mountain has made a lot of lawyers rich in the past 40 years of litigating this. Well, all that spent fuel has been stored on site uh, at the nuclear power plants. And that's, I have a nice picture on um, page three of that. Uh, you wanna check that out. That's a typical uh, nuclear power plants parking lot, so to speak. 
And all those cylinders are spent nuclear fuel just sitting there. It'd be like all the trash in your house. It's like, well, you want to have them come and take your trash away every week. All of a sudden, um, politically, a, uh, some, some mayor or governor comes down and says, no, trash pickup is not allowed anymore. So you have to creatively store all the garbage from your house. Imagine 40 years of garbage from your house having to be stored if you're lucky enough to have a backyard or something, or wait for right. area or something. So this is the situation that all these like 120, 130 nuclear power plants across the United States have been stuck with having to keep their spent nuclear fuel. So, but now here's the inside out twist to it. Back then, technology was very uh, primitive for taking that spent fuel and making it um, great again. Um, so, turns out when you have spent fuel, only about 3% of it is used. So you have 97% capacity in that spent fuel that we're basically going to throw away and bury in the mountain because that's all we knew at the time. So it turned out that all these politics were a good thing for the future that we could not predict because when it turned out that the United States just did not want to even tackle the spent fuel recycling equation. Uh, at the time, President Carter said this would lead to proliferation of, of you know, nuclear uh, material, which would be terrible, and terrorists could get it, and so forth and so on. So that was a reason not to pursue it. And uh, at the time, France was very visionary, and they said, okay, United States, give us what you got, and we're going to excel at this. And in the past 30, 40 years, France went full bore on this and figured out and pioneered technologies for recycling that fuel. And as a result, France is very uh, nuclear uh, centric with their production and recycling of their fuel. They're a very self-powered country because of that something the United States missed out on. However, recently, the technology is kind of bouncing back here. And even though it hasn't politically been applied, which is a whole other road, technically it has been figured out here for use. Um, and there's a company, uh, Argonne Labs in uh, Illinois, who's very much a pioneer with this stuff. And uh, uh, excelling at it and uh, could very well, given the go-ahead, uh, be a major player in the recycling of all the spent fuel from around the United States. And by the way, there's enough spent fuel with that 97% of energy remaining to completely power the United States estimate, estimates are for about a thousand years. So think about that one. Um, and this is going to bring me into, as we focus this down into the topic of this new small modular reactor revolution. Hmm. These are small, picture something the size of your motorhome or something like that, which is a nuclear reactor. And it is powered by this recycled spent fuel. So now it allows you to get off of the grid, like your neighborhood or your city or 
your town could have their own locally placed reactor self-powered by this recycled fuel. You can even bury it underground, keep it safe, keep electromagnetic pulse or whatever, anything away from that. And it'll run for 25 years, like a sealed battery. So imagine that. And with that comes the whole revolution in power distribution called microgrids. We see that now on a limited basis with solar and wind. They all have like, like a little microgrid, uh, local, local power. But here, your town can be on its own specially designed, robust microgrid, which is receiving its energy from the small modular reactor. So now to take this a step forward, this is how we will go out into space. And I'll run through some of these slides here. Uh, this is how we will go out into space and have, say, an outpost on the moon. What's going to power it? A small modular reactor. Uh, actually, those are micro reactors. And there, there's very, very tiny ones also. Because you know, a lunar base isn't going to be like 20,000 people living there. So it, it's going to be much simpler power economy. But uh, also, say, on Mars, um, where again, it's not going to be a huge infrastructure of people, but you, you're going to need that uh, reliable source of power coming from the small reactor. And um, so I'm just going to just kind of bring this, uh, I think. It, one of your original questions, Jason, was like, why Nevada, right? Like, yeah. what does Nevada play a key part in here? So if we just kind of take a few steps back, Nevada, yes, it's a state in the United States, on planet Earth, whatever. But really, in the scheme of things, um, this, this is coming out of the, the area that has a lot of uh, nuclear heritage. They used to explode nuclear weapons above ground here, and tourists would come, would come and observe the explosion. Um, that was a big tourist attraction back in the 60s. Um, so we have a lot of history. And then there's the, uh, used to be called Nevada test site. It's now called the Nevada National Security Site. This is where those uh, bombs were detonated. Um, a lot of expertise here with that, a lot of infrastructure here. And also there's this one reactor called Krusty, K-R-U-S-T-Y, um, it's a kilopower, kilowatt power, uh, small reactor. Uh, it was actually tested out there too. And now it's been, uh, it's gonna be part of uh, our space infrastructure. But a uh, lot of heritage here. Plus, you know, they thought enough of Nevada to begin the Yucca Mountain project here too. So there's a lot of expertise. So that's why, and uh, then our group that formed uh, to get this, we want to get this recycling and small modular reactor industry here because we do have that infrastructure of those people. So we're doing it now. Also, there's an organization in Virginia that has a similar vision. And this is terrific because basically between us, there could be an East Coast and West Coast spent fuel recycling uh, center. So you know, spent fuel on the East Coast, they don't have to ship it all the way out to Nevada and then have the logistical train with it. So they'd be localized for East and West Coast. So again, another synergistic situation came up like, a, 
Virginia is very well placed uh, geographically as Nevada is very well placed geographically for this effort. So that's, that's kind of, that's that background. Um, so the third chart, we uh, showed all that cool thing here. If you all want to go to um, the fourth chart here, this just shows the whole big plan and I'll talk you through it here even if you can't see the chart, um, is that our philosophy is that we're taking Yucca Mountain from being a permanent storage site, a cemetery for nuclear fuel, as you will, um, and turning it just into a temporary storage area, like a queuing kind of site, so the fuel can be moved out of all those quote parking lots and at all these nuclear plants. And um, we would then temporarily store it. And then the next thing we do is we recycle that fuel. I mentioned Argon Labs uh, previously. He's a US leader in this now. Uh, so this very well possibility could be their recycling center. So we're recycling that fuel. And then out of that spent nuclear fuel, there's a tiny amount of very hazardous um, radioactive uh, remains from that. And also they've perfected this way to store that, that very highly radioactive uh, material in a ceramic type of encapsulation. And, and then that little photo there shows it there. And if you look carefully, there's a person walking around in that room who is not concerned about getting radiation poisoned. Mm -hmm. So the whole concept here is it's a terrific one. And then the next is just uh, like uh, 12 different versions of these small modular reactors. Um, kind of an old chart, but anyway, the reality is we're, we're gonna get into that in a minute, that there are a few designs now that are officially in the mill with the Department of Energy. Um, so then the last concept, all this adds up to having small modular reactors and that photo you can like see how they look being on a flatbed truck being transported. And uh, then to the right of that, you, you see like those uh, turquoise uh, blue, bluish uh, kind of circles that symbolizes a, a city contained with its own small modular reactor and microgrid. We've all heard that phrase, gee, what happens if the grid goes down? Uh, my professional opinion, the only secure grid is no grid. We don't want the large national grid in the future. We want every area to have its own small modular reactor and microgrid. This is the only way to, to assuredly deploy reliable energy everywhere. You're not externally dependent on anything. Very important concept. So then on that next chart is um, number five. You can see a blow up of that um, chart. So you can see the microgrids a little better, the size of the small modular reactor, you know, someone standing next to it, transportability of it. So this basically summarizes what I, I just said. So there's no more dependence on the vulnerable national grid. Instead of one national grid, tens of thousands of microgrids, each powered by its own small modular reactor. And it will generate enough power in the U.S. for approximately a thousand years using the recycled spent nuclear fuel. You know, we're all concerned about um, energy efficiency, 
all that stuff, right? In this situation, there's too much energy. It's like there, there's too much. We couldn't even use up because the, the way things happen, the way innovation comes about, probably within about 100 years, I would guess, uh, if you all saw the Back to the Future movies, uh, if you recall Mr. Fusion, little thing you put the uh, trash in, uh, and it converts it into, it pulls the, the atoms out and uh, performs uh, fusion. Um, those kind of things are going to happen. So my guess is that even this scheme I'm talking about today, probably in 100, maybe 200 years, maybe 50 years, I don't know, will become obsolete. And we might not even end up using all that spent fuel and recycling it because it'll be um, obsolete. That, that system be obsolete. We will maybe have Mr. Fusion in the future. But anyway, this gets us through our current situation of grid vulnerability. Right now, if we lost power, just imagine if your power is out for two weeks, a month, a year, five years, it's all over. Um, life as we know it. We, my favorite saying is our dependence upon electricity far exceeds the ability of that electricity to be provided assuredly. And that's very important. It's like we cannot supply as much as we need it. We are way too dependent on something that's kind of on shaky ground. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so right. if we want, if we're going to depend on electricity, we need a dependable system to deliver us electricity no chance of quote the grid going down this is a key point hmm. oh. okay well there's a there's a lot to unpack there um the idea is cool uh the distributed system is a good idea so that we're not dependent on this one infrastructure um i, I am curious about a few things first uh i know there's a lot of federal land in nevada why didn't the feds just say put the nuclear fuel on our site here and stop litigating about it any idea um, Would that still have to go through Congress, maybe? As we've seen, there's reality and, and then there's politics. Mm. We've seen that a lot lately. Same kind of thing. Things where, where black is white and white is black. Things just do not make sense. Um, it's, that's what rules, mm. unfortunately. Um, it's the same with this. However, in this case, it worked out well. Mm -hmm. The logic of it worked right. out well because we would have buried and we would have had to recover all that 3% used fuel mm -hmm. in order to do this. So there was a uh, light at the end of that tunnel. Um, things move very slowly in the government yeah. and um, not logically. Um, as far as any, anybody making a snap decision, it's like, no, it's, it's a process. <laughs> okay. um, a lot of people have to benefit from it. Mm -hmm. um, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it takes. But the most important thing is putting the national interest number one here. And good person, bad person in this world, even the bad people are dependent on their electricity being provided mm -hmm. We share a common interest. So 
for your sake, if you're a bad person, you, you will want this too. Your life without electricity would also be hell. Yeah. So I see a total united front of us, uh, an opportunity. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway. I, went, I went through a hurricane already uh, a few years ago and I was without power for nine days in, uh, in oh. coastal North Carolina. And uh, it was hot, it was humid, it was September, which is still hot there. Um, it was gross and, uh, and there was nothing to do. The windows are open, but big deal. <laughs> you know? And you got nothing, you know, and, and uh, the city got isolated because of flooding. Um, the diesel gensets powering the cell phone towers ran out of fuel after two days. So there was no communication. And I don't think a lot of people have been through this. You think that your cell phone's going to keep working? Uh-uh. I had nothing. <laughs> and there was no fuel at gas stations. The roads were blocked anyway. The stores were all closed. Uh, there, was, there was nothing, nothing to do, except just sit and wait it out and hope that, uh, you know, they come by and, and fix uh, things. So with these little micro nuclear power plants, Marty, um, as I said earlier, I have a background in power generation. Generally, the idea is you're, you're either... Uh, well, you're consuming some kind of fuel to produce mechanical energy. It goes into a, a stator winder and produces uh, electricity, right, down the other side, which maybe you put into batteries and then pull off later or whatever. Um, out there in the world, in the, um, the big network we've got right now, we've got coal-fired power plants that burn fossil fuel, turn that into steam. That turns turbines. The turbines go and create that. That's the mechanical energy that creates the electricity. In uh, nuclear... The, the nuclear heat heats water, that steam turns steam turbine goes out. I don't think people understand this either uh, for the most part. Um, and that, that goes in um, a, a, a dam, hydroelectric, same thing. The water is passing over turbines, turns that, that's the mechanical energy and that, that goes and creates the electricity. Um, so, so are these mini nuclear and micronuclear power plants doing the same thing? They're essentially like boiling the water uh, with their energy and, and producing the mechanical energy from that? Yeah, I think uh, it's like similar to what's like on a submarine or aircraft mm -hmm. carrier. Same kind of process, except with the Navy, you have all that nice cold seawater around you for cooling mm -hmm. it down. Right. These, the, the main difference, which has made these so difficult, uh, but they're, they're coming about, is that they need to be self-contained and self Cool. How do you cool that down? How do you exchange that heat? And it turns out there's a number of, of variants uh, like sodium-based, like salt, uh, lead. Lead acts as a coolant and it works, quote, good enough in order to achieve the outputs uh, necessary. We're talking, um, say, with something the size of a typical motorhome, maybe 20-foot-long motorhome. We're talking probably about 10 megawatt of electricity. Okay. So that's significant. And then the concept is they're modular. So you, uh, you need more, you put them together. Uh, there's yeah. other companies that make larger, small modular reactors, uh, maybe 100 megawatt. So that might be the size of a, uh, a medium sized house. Mm -hmm. So that's not transportable, however. The whole, <laughs> whole concept yeah. that, um, not that you need these transformable, but kind of the jump off point here is on the next slide, um, which is six. Uh, the military is extremely 
uh, interested and proactive with this. Um, and what played into our hand here in Nevada is Creech Air Force Base. And on the right, you see a picture of us uh, standing next to one of those drones, the MQ-9. And um, so when we fly these drones on the other side of the world, they're being controlled from Creech Air Force Base, about 40 miles away from me. And think about it. They are depending on the power grid. Mm -hmm. If the electricity goes out, so goes the ability to control these drones. So now, of course, they have diesel generators there that they keep up and they have tons of fuel and whatever. But let's picture if the grid went down for a month. So don't know okay, how long yeah. those generators will last, how right. dependable it'll right. be. I mean, they do suck up a lot of fuel, like, like I said, with the hurricane, two days, right? And, and, what if and, you and cannot, the diesel gen sets were done. Yeah. And then what if you can't pump fuel into mm -hmm. a truck to get it up there too? Mm -hmm. So there's a whole logistical bad situation <laughs> that's inherent with this. Um, yeah, so the fuel is there, it's right there. <laughs> It's contained in the machine, so right? Bad. It's on site. Uh, you're not having to depend on a pipeline, which can get broken or blown up or something like that, or trucks, like you said. Right. Uh, and yeah, plus, and, and for um, people to get an idea, like uh, I used to sell industrial gas turbine generator sets, uh, among other things. And those things would go up to like five megawatts. Let's say you can get bigger ones, but that would be enough to run like a little town kind of thing, you know, like a, like a small um, work area with a, I don't know, an aluminum plant and some housing around it or something like that. So, you know, we're, we're, that's the scale we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. So now the diesel generators, that'll keep the, the, the pilot control stations functioning and all that. But probably if it's, if it's in um, August, um, your cafeteria where people eat and hang out, that's maybe... Uh, going to be 90 or 100 degrees in there because they're not going to they're not going to have enough uh, power coming from those diesel generators to power everything on the base sufficiently so they're going to have to put that power where it's needed and uh, it's only going to be mission specific applications right so, air conditioning is nice to have in in that location yeah, yeah. just like at my so, house <laughs> yep. after the hurricane so so creech air force base is like our launch customer for focal point for this. So uh, if the grid goes down, military can still perform their mission um, on the other side of the world, being controlled from Nevada. Um, basically, uh, there's this concept called, quote, the weapon system. And the weapon system includes everything in order for you to um, deliver an effect somewhere, whether it's if I have a gun right here, uh, the bullets are coming out, they're delivering an effect like five feet away from me. In this case, the weapon system is this drone flying thousands of miles away. And it's, uh, the concept is called uh, remote split operations. So the controlling point is just as much a part of the weapon system as the vehicle flying on the other side of the world. Part of that is the power, the electricity that's being supplied to do this. So the typical 
off-the-grid electricity has now become part of the weapon system. Mm. That's pretty scary because that is a very big, weak link mm -hmm. in the weapon system. So having the small modular reactor closes that gap 100% and provides the assured power. So now the weapon system can perform under any circumstances. It's not going to be impaired by the power going down. Very important. Uh, so all gets down to national security. I have that in red on the bottom. Uh, it says if the grid goes down for, for beyond a reasonable amount of time, Creech cannot fly their mission. National security. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, the Army, I've been working with the Army back in D.C. on this. Um, think about, there's probably been more deaths from fuel convoys going into an area, probably about, I think, 70% of the logistics mm -hmm. when we go into a remote operation uh, location somewhere is getting the generators and the fuel out there. And as you can imagine, those fuel trucks are a very big target for the enemy to want to shoot. Like, why wouldn't they? And they explode. If, yeah. <laughs> causing if, more mayhem. <laughs> if we were the enemy and they were doing it, the biggest no-brainer would be shoot up their fuel truck, explode yeah. it, kill as many people as you can because they're bad to us. And then they can't have electricity and they can't operate their base. So look at the vulnerability we have when we go mm. into a remote area. Think about the alternative to that. Isn't it a whole lot cleaner to fly in a C5A with its own small modular reactor and microgrid they just roll out down the ramp at the location where they need to operate. Look how many lives would be saved. Um, the logistics, the reliability of the power, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, there's no comparison to the way we do business now compared to the revolution that this will bring about. And especially for the military, so many people, soldiers have been killed in these fuel convoys. And mm -hmm. look at the cost in human life and in money um all that's eliminated with this with this yeah do, do you need a hercules size plane to be able to do that yeah what could you do with a helicopter okay because no, you need well, a run okay. you need a runway to handle a plane that big too right so. well like the c-17 is real short yeah. i think they even land on dirt okay. um but it depends if you just need a little uh you know half a megawatt system then yeah. that that would fit in Mm -hmm. you know maybe some kind of larger helicopter or something i, I don't know i'm just guessing here right. but it just depends what you need but if you're you know if you're going in with any kind of sizable operation uh you're going to need probably at least five megawatts uh maybe up to 10 to yeah. sustain that whole operation and all those people mm -hmm. so it yeah, just and, and you're going to need motor control centers because you're going to have other big devices that need to power up and uh yeah you're going to need more stuff. Yeah, it just <laughs> so, it depends. But, but that it is better than trucking it in and being very vulnerable. Uh, right. Many, many times in history, uh, right. I think the Soviet invasion of Finland uh, is a good example of having one road and the, the enemy is coming in on that one road and the other, you know, the, the, their opponents can come at it from the sides and chop them up. And right. uh, it's ugly. That's, that's where I think. Marty, what? You're looking at a military application here, which is uh, very typical <laughs> for our part of the world, right? You know, for figuring out who's our first customer in that. Um, 
on the civilian side, uh, as far as the big uh, network goes, are you running into any uh, pushback from the grid, uh, from the people who operate the, the big grid? Or is it just not on their radar yet? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, so what we're looking at, of course, if this gets um, transitioned over into civilian application, um, there's going to be all kinds of regulatory, this, that, whatever, approved safety. Yeah. Um, so the safety and effectiveness of this will need to be proven out and will be proven out by the military. The same way, in a sense, uh, you know, there, there are how many years, 40 years of operations on aircraft carriers, ships, submarines, mm -hmm. uh, total safety record. I don't know of anything significant that that is been bad so you picture you know you got like x number of people on a submarine living next to a, a nuclear reactor powering them underwater for long periods of time so so there's a safety record there so similarly these small modular reactors will have to prove out over time that they are just as safe so they don't take out your neighborhood <laughs> or wherever it's placed so so there there's a Again, you know, the military government has historically proven out things. Um, you look at the space program, um, everything was taxpayer funded, you know, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, national programs. And then these other programs of late coming there, basically um, not minimizing what they do, but they, they, they get the information that, that uh, was developed over many years by many very smart people. And they take that and they just adapt their new requirements to it. So a lot of the engineering, most of the engineering was done up front um, through, uh, through like NASA and the Air Force, you know, military is behind, NASA inherited a lot of things from the military, of course. Um, you look at the first like um, Redstone rocket that put uh, Alan Shepard into space, um, that was like an ICBM beacon. Um, and then the Atlas. The Atlas was an ICBM rocket. And we instead, we took off the, the nuclear warhead and we put on a little capsule, a Mercury capsule, and launched someone into orbit. So everything has its genesis that way. And then all these years later, then the commercial companies come in and they kind of uh, like a dog picking apart the bones of something, they, they find the applicable engineering that's been done that makes their job easier for them to then adapt and do what they're gonna do. So it all kind of starts from, from that point of, of course being a uh, funded effort that came from the military or um, civilian sector, not civilian, but government sector. So, um, these small modular reactors, to answer your question, will be proven out over time with their effectiveness and safety with the military. And then the whole, and that, that's gonna take many years, maybe 10 years, 10, 15 years of operations to uh, feel that level of comfort. And then the microgrid si simultaneously will be developing to suit these different classes of reactors. And then it's going to be up to the same way you can make a decision. If you want to put solar panels on your roof, 
mm-hmm. and have your own full microgrid right. at your house, you can do that. So let's say, oh, Marty's moving to a new neighborhood and the homeowners association says, you know, we don't want to be on the grid. Um, we want to uh, part of your HOA. Uh, are you okay with paying $500 a month to uh, have all the electricity you would ever need and it keeps us independent. So, you know, Marty would look at that and say, well, right now in the summer, I'm paying close to $400 a month for electricity because of the air conditioning here, it's $100 more. But I tell you that maybe extra $100 is worth it for the uh, assurance that my power is never gonna go down. And I can run that air conditioner at 60 degrees if I want. (laughs) Instead of like, oh, you know, if I put it down another degree, it's going to cost an extra $50 this month. So think in terms of like unlimited power. Mm-hmm. For it's that always amount. good to have more, right? It's always good right. to have greater capacity. We'll figure out a use for it. Don't worry. But okay. I like that. Going back to, you know, the moon or Mars or whatever, you always want more. Yeah. yeah. So the HOA, if they want to have their own proven safe modular reactor, and they have their own microgrid, they're gonna to have to lay in the grid system anyway in the new neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So how about we all, we buy our own grid and we put that in. Who's to say no? Is the power company gonna say, you cannot do that? You know, mm-hmm. like huh. they, they can't. And if they can, those laws better be changed. But anyway, you see what I mean? It's like, we can do what we want. So with that in mind, I see this thing organically growing where neighborhoods, HOAs, prices come down with these things with the manufactured more unlimited electricity. I see it as an organic kind of growth. And so the grid and power companies, they, they can make a decision. Maybe they say, hey, we see where all this is going. Maybe we want to uh, kind of get into the small modular reactor business right mm-hmm. now, microgrid business. This, this would be a good business model for us. We want to be able to offer these options to the HOA. So I think that's how it would go. It, it would just need to organically grow and we see what happens. And I tell you, all we need is one, say if we had a whole uh, USA outage for two weeks or a month, right? Yeah. That would build a lot of fires under a lot of people to uh, embrace this new paradigm. Right. So, um, so I said, I just, so to answer your question, it's like, if you just went up to today and said, we're going to do this, of course, it'd throw every law and regulation up in your face saying no, mm-hmm. but I, I just don't think it'll, it would end up evolving that way okay. because the technology, it has to get there it's, it's, and, yeah. and it will get there and it will win out. Uh, my little analogy of this is um, I used to go to meetings back in the seventies, eighties, like just about every person there had a, a can of soda that they were drinking. Mm. Now, when you go into meetings, like what's everybody drinking? 99% bottle uh, water. Bottle of water. Yeah. You know who was uh, behind those bottled water? That bottle of water? <laughs> soda it's companies. like Coke and Pepsi. <laughs> yep. And those companies, they were smart and they looked ahead and they said, gee, mm. it's like we, mm. for a fraction of the manufacturing cost, we can supply a bottle of water that sells for more than a can of soda. Right. It's like a no-brainer. So the visionary soda companies got into the bottle in the water business. 
So same thing with this. This is the same kind of thing. The visionary power companies will get smart and they'll see the business opportunity. Just okay. everybody, good and bad people, both want reliable power. Mm-hmm. Yep. And once you've been through an experience of, of uh, not having power, um, probably for four or five days or more, I think that's when it begins to set in. And when you don't know when it's coming back on. That's the other thing, right? When you're out of communication, there's no website to look up and go, oh, the energy company says we'll be in your area Thursday or something like that, right? When you don't have any of that stuff and it could go on forever, right? Is it going to be nine days? Is it going to be 14? Is it going to be seven? That's when it really begins to sink in like, oh, (laughs) we've got a serious problem here and I don't ever want to go through this again, right? Think about your food, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. How to set up for food. Um, you couldn't even turn on your faucet, right? No. Um, well, we that's actually a good point. No, we could not. Um, I did have on property water, but it still needed a pump and the pump needed to be electrically powered. And so when we knew the hurricane was coming, we filled up the tub and, uh, you know, your toilet tank is a source of fresh water. And uh, I put a bunch of um, pitchers of water out on the, on the counter and that, but yeah, after, after the power went out, nothing. You're right. Yeah. Picture that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't been through this. I really appreciate your yeah. perspective on that. It really, yeah. it sucks Perfect. folks. <laughs> yep. yeah. yeah. And, uh, and yeah, your refrigerator, your refrigerator, your frozen food. Uh, it's not just, Oh, everything's going to be five for a day or two. Well, we're past that. And you can't, you know, you got to have a little propane burner or something like that. Fortunately, my neighbor was a builder and he had one um, that he loaned me. And so I could like cook up a pot of rice or something like that. But uh, <laughs> you're not going out to the store to get steak. You're not, you're not getting anything fancy. You're not cooking anything fancy. It's hot. And, uh, and yeah, you've got to conserve. You've got to really yeah. conserve. And Everything so once you get through that, the idea of, gee, if we had a distributed, network of, uh, of power plants that that uh, you know we've got one of our own here and uh, there's a thing called an automatic transfer switch folks that just when the grid power goes out it switches over to your backup power um, so even if if this was a backup um, although I don't know why it would be you know but uh, it, it would be there to just switch over but again yeah. as, as we said earlier um, on something that's not nuclear, you've got a fuel supply that is being consumed in order to create that electricity with the nuclear option here. You've got uh, what you said, you know, uh, hundreds to a thousand years or whatever, at least 25 years of, uh, of power ready to yep. go. So it's like a rechargeable battery. Cool. Mm. Yeah. To throw away that spent nuclear fuel and bury it, would be like, so there's my little camera mm-hmm. and it has these nice little batteries in there. Yeah. It'd be like having these nice rechargeable batteries, using them once, never recharging them and throwing them away. Hmm. It's like I've used these batteries for probably about two, three years. I've recharged them hundreds of times. So that's the case with this quote spent nuclear fuel for hmm. um, throwing away. Um, yeah, a everything. gold mine of energy, really. Well, let's so finish up I, with this, Marty. I, I do want to have you back on at some point. I know you're interested in like a spaceport in Nevada and there are plenty of other topics we could cover. Um, 
And I do like to get deeper and deeper with guests who return, right, in our conversation because we get to know each other a little bit. And I know what I can ask about and I learn more. Um, well, let's finish up with this. What, are, what, what kind of projects interest you the most nowadays and what's your vision for the space industry over the next 20, 30 years? Okay, so kind of to answer that along the lines of this presentation, um, if you go to page eight, um, y'all can study this as on your own, but I want to point out the reality of what's going on. This is very exciting. Uh, Project Pele, and uh, Pele is the goddess of volcanoes and fire uh, that created the Hawaiian Islands. So that's where we got the name. But Project Pele is the first real, it's taken out of the dream world, uh, small modular reactors for the military that's under development now. Department of Energy, and you can click on that link that's in there. You can see what's going on with it. Um, within well, probably about two, by two years from now, two, three years from now, we're going to have our first prototypes of this. And this is for military application. I also I discuss on here the three companies that are involved in this. So this is very important because everything we've talked about here has been conceptual. This is the reality. Here on page eight, this is the beginning of the reality of what's going on now and for the next few years. This is the, the journey of a thousand miles beginning with the first step. This is the first concrete step. Uh, chart after that on nine is talking about, I mentioned this before, that Krusty program. This is the uh, small reactor, tiny reactor actually, it's 10 kilowatt um, opposed to one to five megawatt, which is Pele. And um, so this is a small reactor for pretty much immediate use on the moon, Mars, wherever we might go, where we need portable power. This was tested out here in Nevada. So this is very exciting. Um, next, uh, so think in terms of power for space, there's two different things. There's uh, for propulsion, for a rocket, and then for power, surface power, like for your house or your outpost or something. Um, I'm not really dwelling on the propulsion aspect. I don't know much about that, but um, Anyway, on October 20th of 20, NASA and Department of Energy signed an MOU uh, for, for propulsion. Uh, so what are we going to do? How are we going to apply these nuclear concepts for nuclear space propulsion? So that's about all I'm saying on here. So and then the last chart, um, you know, the whole big thing now is uh, Moon and Mars. So three worlds, one common power source. It's the same concept, though. You need assured energy. In all, in all three worlds, we need, we definitely need it here on Earth, where many billions of people live. We're going to need it on the Moon, where people's lives are going to depend on that power, and also far away on Mars and beyond wherever we go. But um, the same concept: a small nuclear reactor with its own microgrid is going to save the day on Earth. And also is, of course, the way we will do it on the other world because no other infrastructure exists. Um, another quick little uh, uh, side story on that. Like in, in like Europe, in the US, we have our cell phones. Uh, there were many um, third or fourth or fifth world countries in the world that didn't even have it together. They couldn't even put an infrastructure for uh, copper wire for people to have telephones. So what happened when cell phones came in, all of a sudden, 
they just bypassed that whole paradigm and the poorest villager or whoever, or maybe head of the village, um, has their own phone. So even though they never could get it together for infrastructure for the old paradigm, the new paradigm totally enables, puts that enabling technology in everybody's hands. So same thing with this. This puts the enabling technology of power at your fingertips 24-7 assuredly. Um, it, it puts it in, in the hands of the people who require the power. So um, that's kind of a big thing. So I'm really, to answer your question, I'm very excited about this, working every day uh, with this concept to, to bring this forward and uh, having the opportunity to tell your audience about it here is very important because we all, you all can take this message and multiply it and tell it to your friends and people. This is, this is what it takes. It's like people first need to know about this. Mm -hmm. I, I tell you, probably two to three years ago, I didn't even know about this. This was a, there are two things that were revelation to me. Number one is the concept of a small modular reactor. And number two is about something I never thought about. It's like all that spent nuclear fuel sitting in the parking lot of all these places. Like, really? That's what they're doing in it? And then the whole Yucca Mountain thing just didn't make sense. They were saying, oh, it's too dangerous to put in the mountain. Yeah, but it's safe enough to leave it out in the parking lot where you can right. drive by on the, the highway and see it, right? <laughs> so that's okay. It's okay behind a chain link fence, but to bury it a mile deep, is that's very dangerous. So that opened my eyes to the politics, whatever. But in this case, I, I, I give a thumbs up to the politics because of their delay and what was illogical reasoning to me um, that the right answer came about. And now we all have the opportunity to implement that right answer and make a difference for assured energy for this country and, and the world. It's, it's very important. We all depend on electricity now. So why not have it in the most robust manner delivered to us as possible? So. Right. Marty, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, probably my LinkedIn. Um, if you put that link in um, with sure with this presentation, you yeah. can probably have it, right? So yeah, yeah just put that in there. All I'm right. happy to answer questions, you know, contact me, whatever. Uh, if you want to go talk to your local city councils or whatever, I'd be happy to work with you, supply presentation material, uh, brief you to the point where you understand it very well. Uh, it's very important. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you doing this, Marty. So, okay, that was great. Um, and we'll be in touch. Thank mm -hmm. you all for your attention. Apologies for going so long here, but when you want to roll with this, it, it's, um, it's a lot of aspects. And um, the, the point is, is to let you all know what the possibilities are. It's a totally new paradigm if you want to see it. So. Thanks for tuning in. If you're interested in working with us at Cold Star Tech, here are some of the things that we can help with. There's a lot of people who talk about process, documentation control, attention to detail, all this stuff. We help organizations become true learning organizations. Remember, if something isn't written down or recorded in some way that's accessible, searchable, findable, it didn't happen. It might as well not have happened. So if you have two people who solve a problem, a serious problem in your organization, but they do so in isolation and nobody finds out about it, 
which happens all the time, then it didn't really happen and nobody else can access that wisdom. So we unlock wisdom for your organization. We do a lot of things in the space industry. We have access to regulatory and legal officials who can help you if you're a space industry founder find out what areas of regulation and compliance uh, do you need to be you know, working with, compliant with. And we find a lot of folks don't even know about some of these areas. They don't even know that they exist. Can you imagine how you're going to stumble and stub your toe and really screw up your organization's timetable if you don't know about these things? So come and talk to us. We've got great relationships with the right people, especially in the United States and in England. And uh, we'll be able to help you with that. And so when it comes to process improvement, whether that's some sort of business documentation, business development roles, wow, have I seen some things in business development. You got founders out there who all they're doing is quoting on projects. This is a mistake. You're wasting your energy bidding on things that most of which you never even had a chance of winning in the first place. Uh, I've seen people bankrupt themselves bidding on everything or bidding on only these uh, high-end things and not realizing that you need to have a strategy so that this bidding process pays for itself. I mean, you got to learn how to screen here. And this is not something that they teach you in school. I, I had to learn it myself, so don't feel bad about it, but come talk to us about it, okay? Uh, so either it's on the business process side or the actual manufacturing of physical goods that kind of process improvement. You can come talk to us. Can this be done faster, cheaper, better? And yes, most of the time <laughs> it sure can um, because people just do stuff. And the first person to invent the way of doing things uh, is the person who gets to choose most of the time how things are done. This happens all over the place. I like to point out our um, traffic signals for, for automobiles are based on the way that they ran railway traffic 100 years before that, okay? So, and this is key in the space industry right now, which is new, right? This is an area that I personally am interested in. How we figure out how to do stuff today is going to impact generations because people are so easily locked into, this is how we've always done it. And if you hear that at your organization, there's a warning bell. This is how we've always done it. You need to come talk to us at that point, okay? So reach out to us. It's easy to do. Just message me on LinkedIn or email me at jason at coldstartech.com. I want to hear from you. Thanks for listening.